Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. An initiative petition to raise the state's minimum wage faces its first legal challenge. The state chamber and Farm Bureau say the proposal to raise wages to $15 an hour by 2029 is unconstitutional. They say state question 832 would usurp legislative power by putting the increases in the hands of a federal agency. Ryan, do you think they have a case here? Well, they, you know, this is just typical, just, you know, to back up for a second, this is typical in the initiative petition process now that Mm -hmm. somebody files, if you've got an opposition group out there that either has in-house legal counsel or the funds for legal counsel, you can almost uh, assure yourself that you're going to face a legal challenge. The proponents of an initiative typically build in enough time uh, into their process to account for one of these challenges, and they have a a very strong legal team on their side. The proponents, I know, are represented by Melanie Rugani, who uh, has been my counsel on on a number of these matters in the past, is really one of the sharpest legal minds in the state, and there's really not another practicing lawyer right now in Oklahoma that is as well-versed as she is at responding to these. And so I have not seen a response brief yet, but I anticipate that whatever we do see will be a very strong uh, rebuttal. You know, challenges like this, I, I think um, it's it's a very difficult burden uh, for the challengers to meet because there is this presumption uh, built into the law that the people of Oklahoma have this very fundamental right to take legis- legislative questions direct to the voters. I mean, this is in fact, it's the first reserved right to the people in the Oklahoma Constitution. So the Supreme Court has found that it is a very precious right and you have a very steep burden if you're going to keep something off the ballot. The legal issue here is non-delegation. It's the doctrine of non-delegation. And while the state legislature in Oklahoma enjoys this enormous grant of authority and, uh, to pass you know, basically a law on whatever they want, one of the things they can't do is maybe tell a state agency uh, go, go make Oklahoma a better place to live. Well, that's the legislature's job. You know, they can tell an agency specifically how they want to do that, and they can promulgate rules to affect that. Here, they're saying that by tying it to the consumer price index, uh, a federal agency would have that, uh, that authority. Well, that's not all that dissimilar to state laws, especially around Medicaid eligibility, that tie things to, say, the federal poli- policy or the federal poverty level uh, that is also uh, designated annually by a federal agency. So I, I don't think that the legal challenge here really rises to the level that we'll see this ballot measure kicked off the ballot. But, you know, we'll remain to see what the court does and how they handle it. Neva. Well, I think they do have a, r- a real question on the constitutionality, and especially with the fact that you're talking about, Ryan, the major concern being that this automatic open-ended increase would be linked to the uh, uh, the federal government's uh, produced index. And let's face it, that index is something that is uh, uh, tied to cost of living raises in cities like Los Angeles or New York City or um, San Francisco, in addition to places all across Oklahoma. So they have a legitimate question. I think the other thing that uh, comes into play here in the 
in the context of state questions is yes, there's a right to put a question forward. In this instance, you have this group, Raise the Wage Oklahoma, wanting to advocate for this uh, increase to $15 uh, over the prescribed time frame. But I think the issue, when you look at it from the business community standpoint, is the fact that even though right now the state's hourly minimum wage is, minimum wage is $7.25, Arguably, most employers across the state are paying much higher than that, and I think that's one of the points that the state chamber brought out, is that uh, you could be looking at actually suppressing workers' wages, not increasing. So in this competitive marketplace where you see a sign on every corner uh, <laughs> with, the, uh, with, with work being available, I think the competitive nature of the marketplace is dictating that wages have gone up uh, substantially, even since uh, COVID. So... It'll be a fascinating um, legal back and forth uh, mm -hmm. to, to, to resolve that issue. And then a campaign certainly will be a campaign where there will be proponents and opponents. And ultimately, I think the big question will be if they get through the process, if they get the signatures and get it on the ballot, when will that be? Well, yeah, and that's one of the things that, you know, one of the lessons coming out of State Question 820 is, you had the governor exercise this authority to place the ballot question on a standalone uh, election for the most part. It was in, in almost every precinct in the state, state question 820 was the only thing on the ballot. And because of that, you had extraordinarily low turnout. So uh, even if the proponents do get this, is it something where they can make a primary ballot or a runoff ballot or a general election ballot where you're going to have you know naturally higher turnout levels or will it happen such that the governor has a time frame where he can place it on a standalone ballot and make this the only thing that voters might consider? Then you have a real big turnout question, same as we had with State Question 820. And it could be on the November 2024 ballot where you have a presidential uh, mm -hmm. a ballot at the top. So there's no way to predict on that. But uh, and, and I think both sides could argue the pros and cons of where the advantage or disadvantage sure. would be. But again, this is something I think we'll be talking about for the next several months. Attorney General Gettner Drummond says women in Oklahoma can't be prosecuted for having an abortion. The formal opinion comes as some lawmakers consider laws to prevent women leaving the state for the procedure or obtaining abortion drugs over the mail. Neva, how could this impact bills in the coming legislative session? Well, I think obviously we'll see a lot of bills in the uh, upcoming session all across the board on, on this subject. But w when we really look at the fact that there's really been no instance been cited where uh, even in the past that there has been any charge on a woman in, in, in Oklahoma related to exactly what they're talking about, I think this is more the political dynamic of the back and forth, not only of the attorney general's office, with their formal opinion last week on the subject, but also their direction that they gave, particularly to uh, folks in the in the medical community. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know that there was much new. It was just more formalized coming out of the attorney general's office. Right. Well, and I think that that is you know something that's needed. You know, in the, in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, that happened, you know, right around the same time that Oklahoma. You know, Oklahoma already had, you know, several anti-abortion measures, uh, you know, on the books, but, you know, leading up to and, and after the, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the United States Supreme Court, we saw the state legislature enact some of the strictest anti-abortion measures in the state or in the United States. And so it has left a lot of confusion, both for <clears throat> women seeking abortions, uh, for physicians that may have to perform abortions, whether that would be an elective abortion or... Uh, a life-saving abortion or, or an abortion related to health care. 
um, or the health of the mother. Those are those have been real big questions, and we have seen instances where women in Oklahoma have had to leave the state in order to receive in order to receive life saving care. We've seen instances where physicians have left the state of Oklahoma because they felt like their ability to uphold their uh, Hippocratic Oath uh, has been infringed upon by the legislatures. They, they've been leaving. We've seen medical students not come to Oklahoma as a result of these new laws. Uh, so I think at the very least having some clarity there. And one of the other things that I think that the Attorney General's opinion and then the guidance that Neva uh, mentioned about, pro, you know, the guidance towards prosecutors uh, and medical professionals, one was that you know, we should give these medical professionals uh, a lot of deference uh, in determining you know, these issues and whether or not uh, the life of the mother really is at stake. You know, prosecutors shouldn't be stepping in and second-guessing that. The other thing that they advised prosecutors to do was contact the attorney general's office before you initiate one of these prosecutions uh, and talk through the laws here so that we're not seeing potentially either political prosecutions or prosecutions that could ruin a person's life, uh, but then ultimately be declared unconstitutional. I think it's important, though, to note that in this guidance, one of the things that they did say specific to law enforcement is that they said law enforcement should focus on ensuring that abortion on demand is unavailable in Oklahoma and that uh, violators would be prosecuted. So they're, they're looking at it from both sides of the both sides of the equation, not just a one-sided proposition. The head of the state Republican Party is opposing the nomination of the former Cherokee Attorney General, Sarah Hill, for a judgeship in Northeast Oklahoma. Broken Arrow Republican Senator Nathan Dom sent an email to members urging them to demand U.S. Senators James Lankford and Mark Wayne Mullen withdraw their support of Hill. Ryan, do you think this will have an impact on her nomination? Well, you know, I think that the chairman has the exact same influence that I have over the trajectory of Sarah Hill's uh, confirmation process in front of the United States Senate, and that is to say absolutely zero. Uh, when you have the two United States senators that have you know, come out on board early on uh, to endorse this nomination by President Biden, that is the green light for the United States Senate, for the Judiciary Committee, for the full Senate uh, to move forward with this confirmation process, and it is desperately needed. Uh, the two U.S. senators even even if they might look uh, at, at uh, you know, soon-to-be Judge Hill and say, you know, this is somebody who I don't agree with 100% of the time, uh, they nevertheless found her acceptable. And, you know, maybe that's as good as you can get if you've got a, a Democratic president and two Republicans in the United States Senate from Oklahoma. That's, you know, that's about as good as you're going to get. And we desperately need judges, in particular in the northern and eastern districts, because of the increased number of prosecutions that have moved to federal courts in the wake of the McGirt decision. So, um, you know, we've been borrowing judges from, from other, other districts. Uh, there are still backloads uh, and dockets and caseloads uh, for, you know, for everyone that's uh, operating and practicing in those courts. So we need judges there. We need them there soon. The fact that we've got two U.S. senators and a Democratic president, two Republican U.S. senators and a Democratic president that can agree on somebody, the chair of the state Republican Party isn't going to have any influence on how this shakes out. Neva. I, I think I think you're exactly right. I think the die is cast on this uh, particular question. It was fascinating. Not only did Senator Dom, who is now the state Republican Party chair, um, send out this email urging members to um, 
to call or contact uh, both senators' offices and ask them to withdraw their support. It was interesting that he went beyond that and generated emails uh, statewide to activists, uh, people that have been involved in the Republican Party at the grassroots level, asking them to do the same thing. So this flurry of activity, while it uh, may play well uh, with folks who have a natural opposition to wanting to see uh, nominees by by the Biden administration move forward. In this instance in Oklahoma, I think as we've talked about in previous shows, um, it's it's clear that, that this is going to move forward and should have, even though she had a great deal of uh, uh, questioning from other Republican senators during the hearing, that the confirmation process is in all likelihood going to move forward and she will be confirmed. A federal audit uncovers millions in misreported income and expenses for a political action committee associated with the state Republican Party. According to the Federal Election Commission, the Oklahoma Leadership Council's bank records didn't match campaign reports by nearly $2 million. Neva, what happened here? Well, I mean, first of all, I think any political party, any presidential campaign, any political action committee have these issues uh, ongoing with these audits that are regular by the federal elect by the uh, federal election commission. So in this instance, what we had is it appears that the PAC officials who did not dispute these preliminary findings that have uh, come out from the FEC that the audit showed that there were errors that there were that had gone on. And much of it, uh, the result of the health and ultimate uh, death of the uh, the state, tre- the treasurer for the party at the time. So they're in the midst of trying to um, unravel uh, all of these issues. Uh, and with the untimely death of the treasurer, it hampered their ability to be able to even get the records. So uh, this is a process. While clearly there are issues, they will work through them. They will deal with the FEC, and the attorneys will all go back and forth whether there's penalties or fines or anything like that remains to be seen. But uh, the upshot sounds far worse than when you get into the practicality of the details. No one wants incorrect reports. No one wants anyone doing anything that is uh, outside the scope of what the law is. But in this instance, I think you have to get into the weeds to see a little bit more of the detail to know that it's not quite just the sinister, someone's doing terrible things and, and, and uh, intentionally doing it with respect to the Republican Party or their uh, political leadership council. Right. Well, that'd be a lot more fun, you know, <laughs> if we had that. Um, you know, the, the issue with this is, you know, we just don't know what we don't know. And that really, you know, strikes at the heart of, why we have these FEC reports to begin with. They're to provide some measure of transparency. It's you know certainly not the transparency that many individuals would like whenever it comes to campaign financing, but to provide some sort of measure of transparency into who is uh, you know financing these campaigns, who's putting money into these PACs that then ultimately spend money in support of either candidates or particular positions. Uh, and then who are they spending the money with? Who's, who's getting this money? Um, and th- those are very important things I think for the public, uh, you know, in many instances, the public by proxy through journalists uh, to look at these FEC reports and be able to have an understanding of who it is that's trying to attempt to uh, influence these elections and who it is that's uh, benefiting from the influencing of these elections. Those are both very important pieces of information. And when you're off by nearly $830,000 in receipts and over a million dollars in expenditures, you have like a, you have a pretty big black hole there uh, in terms of 
accountability and, and transparency. Now, in overall numbers, uh, you know, I doubt that those numbers are you know a, a majority uh, of the money that has been you know, raised or spent. But it's still very important, you know, regardless of what party it is. I you know I hope that the FEC and their process here at least imposes some new procedures upon the state Republican Party so that uh, and this PAC so that we don't see this happen again. You know, there. Uh, you, know, you know, condolences to, to the loss of the treasurer for the loss of the treasurer, uh, but there ought to have been a contingency plan there. Uh, you know, you're talking about you're not talking about you know something that's you know raising you know hundred dollars uh, here or there. You're talking about something that's raising millions of dollars. You ought to have a contingency plan in place so that if somebody uh, is ill or does pass away, uh, that somebody else can step in and we, and you know where the records are at. Mm-hmm. Well, hindsight's 2020, and I think it's important to note that the two-year period we're talking about is the period that ended back in December 2020. So this is not current. Uh, this is, uh, so this hindsight is really audit. is 2020. It, 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 this <laughs> is 2020. And you have a situation where, as I said, if you were to really um, kind of go and look at the history with the FEC, they spend years after presidential campaigns have con- have concluded and go back and find that uh, in certain instances uh, expenditures were not properly allocated in the proper field or uh, monies were not uh, properly allocated to the proper uh, Packer committee or whatever it happens to be. So it is an ongoing uh, paper mill uh, to con- continue to be uh, in compliance and work with the FEC or in the in the instance in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Ethics Commission. So they are very diligent doing their job. And I think for the most part, you find that the people that are doing the reporting are trying to be diligent. But uh, in this instance, there are issues and I think they'll work through to resolve them as quickly as possible. And State Senator Nathan Dunn was not the that actual is correct. chair. He was the not time. the chair at the and time. And he actually says that they're already they they have put some safeguards in place. That's right. And I think you know they were aware of many of these issues. I mean that were that were um, in the in the midst of the untimely death and and in the midst of just the reporting the re- regular reporting. Uh, periods and now they're just having to work backwards and uh, clean all of this mess up. Former OU head coach Barry Switzer has become the latest person to criticize Governor Stitt for a video sent to the Oklahoma Game Foul Commission. In the video, the governor was cheering on the cockfighting industry and suggesting it's another part of the state agriculture heritage despite being illegal for more than 20 years. The video has since been taken down by YouTube and drew condemnation from former Governor Frank Keating and others. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, not just illegal, but deeply unpopular in the state of Oklahoma as well. I mean, we're, we're not talking about something where you've got, you know, one out of every two Oklahomans that, you know, supporting cockfighting, this, you know, very violent and barbaric activity. It's it's something I think over 80% of Oklahomans disapprove of and agree with the uh, criminal sanctions behind cockfighting in the state of Oklahoma that were adopted back way back in 2002. Uh, you know, so we have, we've been, we've had this on the books now for, you know, 21 years. Uh, and one of the, the real, uh, I think, um, uh, things, real missed opportunities here is in that 21 years, we've seen a woeful number of prosecutions. Uh, so even though you have these, you know, these felony laws on the books, um, and you have in many counties, just, you know, just uh, open and, and blatant violations of this law, uh, you have prosecutors that, for whatever reason, have not been prosecuting these cases. I think ultimately people need, you know, there's 80% plus of Oklahomans that find this a reprehensible activity. 
you know, of course, you know, direct all your ire at the governor that you want right now, but pick up the phone and call your district attorney too and ask him why, why is it that they're prosecuting pregnant women that give birth to healthy babies and and charging them with felony just because they used medical marijuana legally with a patient card, uh, but they're not charging these people that are engaged in this reprehensible violent activity that is, you know, brutal and barbaric and an embarrassment to the state. You know, whenever I first read this uh, coming out, I said, well, Drew Edmondson had, had uh, criticized the governor. Okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, you saw the Humane Society uh, criticizes the governor. Okay, well, that makes sense. You see Frank Keating enter the chat, uh, and he says that it's an embarrassment to the state. And so uh, now, you know, Coach Switzer uh, on there, I think that, you know, they just join a growing chorus of uh, bipartisan Oklahomans uh, who see this as something that uh, is a step backwards uh, and is, is not reflective of the state's agricultural community. Neva. And I think that's the whole issue that really <clears throat> kind of took people back, that I at least uh, just listening to folks as they became aware of this, to have the governor praise the Oklahoma uh, Game Fowl Commission and do this video where he basically says that, I think his words were, I'm cheering you on from the sidelines, and uh, talking about that uh, he that uh, cockfighting is this uh, part of the state's agrarian heritage, I mean, just seemed to fly in the face, as you say, Ryan. I mean, Oklahomans have been very clear in overwhelming numbers that it is that it is not something that should be taking place. And that's why 20 years, 20 plus years ago, uh, they made it a felony. And you're right. I mean, there there is uh, basically cockfight, cockfighting today goes on largely unabated in, in every county across the across the state. So it is an issue and it may again crop up in the in the upcoming legislative session where lawmakers may want to make a more forceful forceful statement or do something beyond working with DAs and others across the state and law enforcement to try to put some more teeth into this or at least some more um, focus on trying to be more aggressive on the prosecution side. So uh, again, from a political standpoint, you just kind of uh, step back and say, looking at uh, who's weighing in on both sides, uh, what was the real upshot from the uh, governor's perspective, and even after the uh, YouTube uh, uh, video was taken down, and it was taken down because it, it uh, in their terms, violated the community guidelines. Um, the governor's office continued to say that uh, and defend his uh, uh, his uh, decision and choice on this, which the governor has every prerogative to weigh in and make a statement uh, to support any group or individual that he or she chooses. But in this instance, uh, um, I think folks were taken aback and wondering what was really uh, the underlying reason that would have precipitated this to start with. And there were actually laws last year to reduce the penalty for cockfighting. So, I mean, does this, the governor saying, I'm supporting you from the sidelines, give power to lawmakers to say, hey, look, the governor's backing me in reducing the power, reducing the penalty for the cockfighting. I think it absolutely gives the momentum. And, I, and you know, whether that's real or not, whether the governor will actually use political capital during this upcoming session to try to move that legislation or not. Uh, you know, I think whenever we talk about things like criminal justice reform in the state of Oklahoma, there are so many other areas that are ripe for reform that uh, that don't uh, require us to you know, sanction some sort of barbaric activity. Yet, you know, we're still I mean, we prosecute folks and put people in jail and prison every day in the state of Oklahoma for things that uh, in comparison to this. Uh, you know, just seem minor. And, and we're like, why in the heck are we spending our resources locking these folks up? Um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, people that, that are out uh, uh, cockfighting need to be thrown in prison forever, but you do need to have some enforcement. You know, you've got this felony on the books 
And if you had just a little bit of enforcement out there, uh, I think it would go a long ways. But if the message for the last two decades from many district attorneys around the state of Oklahoma is you do what you want. And, you know, as long as you don't you know, rub our nose in it, we're not going to show up and, and prosecute you. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny May Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.